Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks uh, for your word and for your spirit, and uh, Lord, just so much, so much depth in your scripture. Lord, we're just uh, honestly, as I was telling some people this this outside, I, just a little bit overwhelmed by it, Lord. So uh, please just orchestrate everything here. Have your way with us, guide us and lead us, guide my words, guide our hearts, and just do a work in our lives today, please. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 2, I will tell you this, I'll tell you this, I'm, well, some of you know me well enough that I'm a crier, all right? Just going to lay it out right there. I'm a crier. Um, I choose to believe that that means I'm sensitive. Um, went to a re- memorial service yesterday uh, for a dear, dear lady that we went to church with for many years in Indianapolis. And uh, it's just such a rich time. And, you know, whenever I go to a, a, a good funeral and memorial service, uh, honestly, there's just so many life lessons to be gleaned. And I'm, I'm still honestly, uh, I'm just kind of telling you where I'm at so you can kind of cut me some slack uh, for the next hour. Uh, but uh, so my brain is a little bit in the blender of that, okay? And I'm explaining it to you know, Anna was, Anna and Earl and their family was up there, but, you know, Anna was out for uh, a good bit of it, you know, with kids, and so we're giving her the play-by-play, and I'm starting to give the play-by-play, and the other, you know, the older kids are around, they're like, yeah, it's going to be one of those days for dad, and so it has been. And then to top that off, this chapter two of Daniel I don't like to get dramatic, but this chapter 2 of Daniel is critically important. Critically important. You know, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church. I want to be as honoring as I can, all right? But I'm just going to say it. Is that fair? Uh, In hindsight, I didn't realize it at the time. But I grew up in a church that pretty much ignored the Holy Spirit, pretty much ignored the whole council, the Bible. Lots of good Bible stories, but the Bible, if you know what I mean. And pretty much ignored prophecy. To which you say, what's left? <laughs> well, I knew where our assigned seat was. You know, and I knew that it was important to dress up. And I knew, you know, I grew up kind of knowing a lot of those things. And I'm so thankful that I was introduced to the Lord at a young age and, and all that. And I, I don't want to, want to take anything away from that. It, I, I feel like, honestly, it was a great foundation for me to just, for me to kind of move on from there. But I have moved on from there. And, um, you know, the Bible, some, I've heard different numbers. It's like 20 some, 26, I think, percent prophecy, Right? So if we ignore prophecy, then we ignore a quarter of the Bible. And I just don't think we can do that and be uh, biblically responsible. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into prophecy today. And honestly, I'll tell you, I've, um, I feel a lot of responsibility with this one because this is a big one. This is a, this is a, what, here's how I was thinking of it during worship. What John three what John three sixteen is to evangelism, right? Or what the Romans wrote, if you know that, is to evangelism, Daniel chapter two is to prophecy. It's foundational. It's crazy foundational. And so, you know, Daniel is a book, you know, a lot of it's about Daniel's life, a lot of it's about his ministry. His ministry happened to be prophetic. And his ministry was well, his ministry was really to, you know, sort of the king's court, if you will, as well as to us prophetically. And I like, again, that the book kind of does both of these pieces sort of back and forth, parallel, hand in hand, because our lives and our ministry cannot be separated. Our life, like our ministry, let's put it that way, is what we do, okay? 
If you're new, we are in. If you're new, would the would the old people please tell the new people what kind of ministry we're in? Full time. If we're a believer, we're in what? Full time. And sometimes that means we get paid for it, right? And sometimes that means we get eternally paid for it, right? And so we are all, as Christians, in full-time ministry. Some of us do it. Uh, I do it, honestly, here right now in this way, and I do it uh, during the week in a, in, in a day job, and I do it at home uh, with a family, and I do it, you know, everywhere I go, hopefully, if I'm being responsible. And so Daniel's life and his ministry cannot be separated. Our lives and our ministry cannot be separated. So today we learn a little more about sort of the ministry of Daniel in his contemporary setting as well as prophetically for us. And a guy by the name of Thomas McCall has said this, think of the prophecies of Daniel as the steel superstructure of a great building to which are attached walls, roofs, floors, and so forth. All the subsequent Bible predictions are attached to the superstructure of Daniel. The two primary parts of the framework are the times of the Gentiles and the 70 weeks concerning Israel and Jerusalem. And so that may be foreign to you, that may be familiar to you. Again, we're going to try to bring it all together uh, as hopefully as, as clear as we can. But the Bible talks about the times of the Gentiles. Jesus referred to the times of the Gentiles. And as God deals prophetically, here's the problem. Well, it's not a problem. Here's the challenge, okay? The challenge is, I can't say, hey, would everybody open up your Bibles to prophecy chapter 1, right? Prophecy chapter 1 is in Genesis, and it's in Revelation, and it's everywhere in between. And so uh, we have to sort of build, it's kind of like painting a picture, if you will, and, or building a building, whatever your analogy wants to be. And Daniel is very much the framework of this building, okay? And as God deals prophetically, he deals with the Jewish people because Jesus came from the Jewish people. And so we see woven throughout the sovereign pages of time, in all of history, past, present, and future, we see God doing a work through Jesus Christ who comes from the Jewish people. And so God is dealing with the Jewish people, His beloved. And then God is also dealing with the Gentile people. One of the great tragedies of modern theology is, is the thought that, well, God gave the Jewish people the chance. They blew it, cast them aside. And now He's doing it with the Gentile people. That's just... Again, I won't fight anybody over that, but I'll just say that's biblically irresponsible. Maybe those are fighting words. <laughs> but it's just biblically irresponsible. Uh, God deals with Jews. God deals with the Gentiles. And so we're going to kind of study them both as we navigate through here. Um, when we get to Jan Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks, that is, that is very much about the Jewish people. Okay? And uh, what we're going to talk about today is very much about the Gentile people. Well, you say, how does that all, how does that work prophetically? Well, here's, here's the best kind of very broad overview I can give, okay? The times of the Gentiles, in a sense, most commentators would say started at around 605 B.C. Now, you recall from the slide we've been showing in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about it, 605 B.C. was the first, Babylonian, the first of three Babylonian conquests of the Jewish people, okay? Jewish, the Babylonians came in in 605, in 597, and in 586, finally with the destruction of Jerusalem. They were carried off captive for 70 years, then they come back, uh, we'll read about that throughout the pages of Daniel, and then, you know, fast forward and fast forward, and, um, God, and we are now kind of in the times of the Gentiles, okay? The people that are following the Lord, by and large, now, around the world, are Gentiles. Fair enough? And there will be a time... When And Daniel describes it, if you want to dig deeper into this or prepare for when we get to chapter 9, Daniel describes there's a time, he calls it the 70th week, which is a seven-year period on planet Earth that we would, as we put other pieces of the Bible together, we would call the tribulation period. 
okay? And that, during that time, a couple things are going to happen. Number one, God is going to pour out his wrath on a God-rejecting world. But number two, God is going to really sort of bring a revival of the Jewish people, okay? So does that make sense? So that's the, God dealing with the Jewish people uh, is a little bit kind of finalized, if you will, in that 70th week of Daniel. That's, the Jewish, that's primarily the Jewish people. I believe, again, I'm not going to fight anybody over this, but I believe that prior to that 70th week of Daniel, prior to that um, uh, time of God dealing with the Jewish people, the church, again, largely, largely Gentile, church will be raptured, okay? So, sort of, if you will, the times of the Gentiles that Jesus refers to is from 605 B.C. to the rapture of the church, okay? And then after the rapture of the church is the 70th week of, of the Jews. Now, If you'll accept that for a second, let me first back up just a little bit and say, I've said this before, I'll say it again, and for the sake of new people, I want to say it emphatically. There are basically two ways to read prophecy. Well, there are three ways. Number one, the way I grew up, ignore it, right? Skip over to John 3.16, okay? The second way is to sort of allegorize it, right? Well, you can't really take it literally, and you know, you got to make a everything's a puzzle, and you got to kind of make a puzzle out of it. And it's kind of a little bit like reading ink blots or, or reading the clouds, okay? I mean, no disrespect to that. But the third way, which I believe is biblically responsible, is that wherever possible, we take it as literally as we can. Okay? Daniel chapter 9, I won't go there in the interest of time. Daniel chapter 9 starts out by Daniel saying, you know, I was reading Jeremiah the prophet, who was a contemporary of his, and Jeremiah the prophet says after 70 years in Babylon, we're going to be, carried, we're going to be taken back to the homeland. So I started praying because 70 years is about up and, and we're going back. That's how Daniel read Jeremiah's prophecy. So, I'd like to be as smart as Daniel in terms of prophecy. By the end of the day, you'll say, whoa, you're not as smart as Daniel, but we could all hope to be, right? And, uh, and so wherever possible, you've heard me say, it was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born of a virgin, right? Now, if you were a theologian in like 50 B.C., you would have had tremendous temptation to say, born of a virgin. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I think that's an allegory. Must be like born of a virgin concept. Was Jesus born of a virgin or a virgin concept? He's born of a virgin, right? And whenever we allegorize something, in reality, what we're doing is we're saying God can't do it the way he said he did it, okay? Now, there are times Jesus spoke in parables, right? Jesus gives us lots of metaphors. There are lots of metaphors to be had. There are lots of things. And so there's some, you know, some room for that, but wherever possible, we're going to take it as literally as we can. Keep in mind, these prophecies, as I said earlier, are so good that the critics regard them as, the critics regard the book of Daniel as having been written later, like some say 200 A.D., some say uh, 100 B.C., uh, but they say this couldn't have been written by Daniel, but Daniel's prophecy is so accurate. That's how accurate it was. Um, but just for a point of reference, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian around 100 A.D., ascribes Daniel as the author of this. Daniel chapter 2 through 7 was written in a form of Aramaic, that existed before uh, the time that they said would, uh, Daniel would have written. So it was only, it was, it was, uh, it ceased, the, the, the sort of the flavor of Aramaic, uh, some scholars say, uh, died off by the time uh, these, these prophecies were fulfilled. 
The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written from the 3rd century to the 1st century B.C., and it contained the book of Daniel. And my personal favorite, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, 16, Jesus says, when you see that abomination of desolation, which we'll get to, Jesus says, when you see that abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then take note. And by the way, if you ever want to like uh, answer Bible critics, right? Like I remember, I remember over the years, you, you probably, inter- you ever have this one where, um, hey, was Jonah really like swallowed by a fish? Anybody ever had that one? You know, I, I believe God. I put up a Christmas tree. Uh, I can pray now. I lay me down to sleep. But I just can't buy that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Except that, being biblically responsible, which we all are, we'd say Jesus himself said, what? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth, right? Jesus felt no need to retrace the story of Jonah and fix it. He just quoted it. And so if Jesus just quotes something, it's probably worth quoting, right? So anyway, side note. Ready? I warned you at the beginning. Did I not warn you? I warned you. And last I recalled, at least Ryan, but I think everybody agreed with Ryan, you all cut me some slack. Right? Drew's on it. Thanks. Thanks. I'll keep begging. This is seriously an important chapter. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So some commentators, you may recall, um, you know, in chapter 1, Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, um, which we grew up learning as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in basically this three-year training program. I refer you back to the last two weeks. It was an indoctrination program, but... um, uh, some commentators say this was during that time. Some say it was right after. It doesn't really matter necessarily. But it says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. Likely a plural, likely a, a repeated um, of the same dream. Okay, like remember uh, Joseph had two dreams, one with the cows and one with the grain. Remember that? And so basically that was a repetition of the same dream. I'm sorry, Joseph, Pharaoh, uh, and Joseph interpreted. But anyway... So, don't be thrown off by that dreams, plural. This is basically a dream that's probably repeated. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. I love this. So the king has these disturbing dreams. He consults the experts. What do we do in America when we have a problem that needs to be solved? Consult the experts. Next time you want to consult the expert, I'm not, no miss, you know, you should consult your doctor, right? <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> right, be wary of the experts, Can I, in all seriousness, Right? If we've learned nothing in the last three years, oh boy, that's a rabbit trail, right? I've always had a jaded view of experts. I've always like, are you bluffing, right? And we've seen a lot of bluffing in the last three years. Uh, But anyway, hey, if you're in Babylon, you're the king. The best you got is a bunch of soothsayers and astrologers. And I love, just like experts today do, they're going to bluff, right? They're going to bluff. You read right through this. It's great. They're like, all right, king, we're, with, we're right there with you. You had a dream? We're here for you, man. Just tell us what it is. We'll give you the interpretation. Well, what is that? Is there any like, and then, that's just a guy's opinion, right? You could tell me you had a dream, and I could say, and you could describe to me the, the dream, right? And I can make up something 
and say, well, that's the interpretation. How do you know if I'm right or wrong? You don't. Old Nebi's smarter than that. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces. Oh, that's a little harsh. And your houses shall be made an ash heap. A little harsher. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. So they're bluffing. They bluffed the first time. Now they're bluffing nervously because they heard that cut in pieces part. Would you bluff nervously if you got that cut in pieces part as a part of the, the presentation? Yeah, I think so. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you're bluffing, that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. You have agreed, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give its interpretation. I love this. See, remember, we talked about this book is about the sovereignty of God. This book, Daniel, is really about the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God sets things up. God sets people up. God sets nations up. God sets history up. God is in control. If we read the Bible, we've got no problem with that. Somehow man still has responsibility, and because God is smarter than we are, we still have no problem with that. But if Nebuchadnezzar just told everybody the dream, and let's say you got five astrologers here, and they all give an opinion, it's just a bunch of guys giving their opinion, and they're blowing smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar, I love this, I believe because of the sovereignty of God, God is making Nebuchadnezzar set them up such that only someone who really is hearing from the Lord can give a legitimate answer to his concern. Now let me just make one other point. That ash heap and cut in pieces thing, would you say say Nebuchadnezzar's a believer or a lost man? pretty evil, pretty, pretty hardcore evil. Like if you don't, like I'm giving you an, uh, really an unreasonable request, an unreasonable demand, and if you don't deliver on it, I'm going to cut you in pieces and burn your house into ash heap. This guy is off the charts unreasonable. Check this out, and I won't go there for now if you want to write it down. Chapter 4, verse 31, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 37 I believe we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Now, how does that apply to us? That person that you think is beyond hope is never, is never ever beyond hope. If Nebuchadnezzar can be saved, anybody can be saved. And I just have to point that out as we go through here because it's real and it's a reminder to me because I, like you, interface with a lot of people and there are some people on this planet that seem so far gone, they seem in our natural mind to be outside of the reach of God, and that is fundamentally not true, and we need to never, ever, ever write anyone off. Can I emphasize that enough, or can I go on? I can go on. Good. No one is beyond God's grasp. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, and they said, hey, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, No king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king, what, except for the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So these guys admit that this calls for a divine answer, and in fact it does. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So apparently, Daniel and his companions are not in this initial dialogue, okay, with the soothsayers and the magicians and the astrologers and all that. But they start killing all the wise people. Well, Daniel and his friends are kind of on that list. They just didn't happen to be in that 
first conversation. So they're on that list. They're, you know, the, the um, whatever, the executioner is on his way. And he's going to come to uh, Daniel and his friends, and he's going to start doing his damage. Then, the count, then with counsel and wisdom, did you catch that? Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king its inter- the interpretation. Now, this is, a, this is key. This is key. We talked last week. Again, I'd refer you back to that. But we talked last week about Daniel's character. Daniel was a gracious man. Daniel was a gentleman. Daniel knew how to treat people with respect. Daniel knew how to earn the favor of others by his behavior, by his wisdom. And it says, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel says, can you picture this? I mean, the king has said, hey, everybody doesn't get the answer. is going to be chopped into pieces. They said, that's crazy. Nobody can do that. So the king says, all right, start chopping. And the chopper starts, walk, starts going through town, right? We don't know for sure from the context if he's actually killed anybody yet, but we know Daniel's next, right? And he shows up to Daniel. Just picture the scene. He shows up to Daniel. Daniel says, dude, what's the rush? Would you do that? Would you do that? I don't know what I would do. I think I would run. He said, hey, what's the rush? And Daniel went in and asked, not just the executioner, Daniel goes to the king and he says, hey, can I have a little time, please, sir, to give the interpretation? Then Daniel went to his house, verse 17. And he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel seeks the Lord and asks his friends to pray. Now again, picture the scene. The, the command has gone out. The executioner is coming. He's on his way. Do you feel the urgency? And Daniel says, hey, can I have time to pray? Do you see the value of this? The importance of prayer? And Daniel says, excuse me, I need to pause the executioner who's got my name on his hatchet so I can pray. And I have to ask myself, how often do I feel like I'm in a situation where I've got to make a decision now. I don't have time to pray. You ever felt like that? There's always time to pray. There's always time to pray. So Daniel prays. God answers. And what does it say? So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I love this. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He remo- he's sovereign, basically is what Daniel's saying. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, that you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what, I, what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's command. So, again, if you'll indulge me for a second, the executioner's come. He's got Daniel's name on his hatchet. Daniel says, hey, can we pause for a second and pray? He prays. God gives the answer. And he says, hey, can you hang on another second? Because I need to write some poetry before you keep executing people. Right? I've got to write a psalm here. Here's my next question. My first question was, is there ever so much urgency that we can't pray? The answer is no. Here's my second question. Is there ever so much urgency that we can't pause and thank the Lord? No. No. Absolutely not. 
Trace and I went to a uh, medical conference uh, for a couple days this week. And uh, it's a long story. But anyway, part of my never-ending quest to provide relevant information to all you guys. Um, I learned this. Here's one of the little nuggets I took home. You ready for this? How many of you are ready for this? In the Journal of Health Psychology in 2011, they studied 7,942 middle-aged American adults who had no heart disease, right? Basically 8,000 people, published in 2011, you got 8,000 people, you take half the group, and you say, go live your life, we're going to check on you in five years, see if you got any heart disease. Fair enough? And half the group, they say, check this out now, half the group, they say, I want you to think of three things that you're thankful for, either before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning. You ready? I wish Sam were here, I'd ask him to do a drum roll right now. 25% reduced risk of heart disease by saying three things. Wow. 25% risk reduction of heart disease by saying three things you're thankful for before you go out at night. 25% reduction in heart disease. By the way, you all knew that because the study was published in 2011. It's been, that's 12 years old information. Did you, raise your hand if you heard that study. There's no money in being thankful. Sorry. It almost got me. Big Pharma can't tell you to be thankful and figure out a way to make it work. Right? But that's the reality. And you know what? My Bible says a joyful heart is good medicine. Yes, yes. Daniel, in the midst of this, this thing, I, can't, I just can't explain it enough. He's about to get his head chopped off. And then the rest of him, he wouldn't care at that point, but the rest of him is going to be cut into further pieces. And he still wouldn't care at that point, but his, his house doesn't get to go to the kids. It's going to be burned up. I mean, he's got it coming. And he says, hang on, I need to pray. And he says, hang on again, I need to be thankful. Catch that, please. Catch that. Verse 24, and therefore Daniel went to Arioch. He's the executioner whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Hey, king, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I'll tell you the king. I will tell the king and it's interp the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, Hey, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king its interpretation. So, uh, you know, you could read too much into this a little bit, but it would appear that Ariok kind of wants to take credit for this. Can I just point out in a parenthetically, whenever God moves, people line up to take the credit. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Whenever God moves, people line up to take the credit. Don't be one of them. I've, I go very, well, we were at this reception or this memorial service yesterday. And I'm talking with people I haven't seen in a long time. You know, how's the church? How's Madison? How's life? Awesome, 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 right? And, you know, and yet I'm always quick to tell people, and I want to be intentional about this, this church is at a sweet season right now. Just, that's just a simple observation. This church is growing. This church is, I believe this church is alive. I believe you guys are just an incredible encouragement to me. And I am very deliberate to say, you know, we've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years. And we're not doing anything different than we've ever done. It's just God's favor. Yeah. And I love what Damien Kyle says. 
If God's doing something and you can identify why, then that's a work of man. It's not a work of God. Say, well, you know, we got this great strategy. Had this great campaign. Had this great recruiting thing. No, if you can identify it, it's not a work of God. I love that. This guy, Ariok, wants to take credit. You see Daniel arguing with him about it? No. No, he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. He doesn't care about credit. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream, make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare that to the king. But there is a God in heaven. Daniel did not miss this opportunity. But there is a God in heaven, by the way, who reveals secrets and has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and your visions of your head, of your head upon your bed were these. And so Daniel gives credit to God. I mean, everything is just like rock, rock solid in order. He prays, he gets an answer, he asks his friends to pray, he gives thanks, and then he has an audience for the king, and he doesn't hold back. He's, he's respectful, but he identifies the limitations of the world, and he identifies the power of God. And we should be diligent to do both. This is the sovereignty of God and the behavior and character of the man Daniel. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have, done, I have more wisdom than anyone living. But, at, but for our sakes, who make, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts on your heart. So this dream didn't come because I'm so smart. This dream came because God basically didn't want me to get my head chopped off. And he wants you to know what he's, what he's going to say, what he's going to do. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. What do you have to worry about? You ever think about that? He's the richest, most powerful man in the world. What's he got to worry about? We're going to see it next week. The preservation of his rich and powerful status. So, you know, it's a catch-22 living according to these world standards. We could say, I want to achieve, I want to achieve XYZ, and then when we get XYZ, guess what we do? We lose sleep worrying about maintaining XYZ, right? And this is troublesome. This is really what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and he's, and God is revealing to him what's going to happen. So I'm going to read verse 31 to 40 just so we get it in a chunk. Bear with me, and then we'll walk through it. Fair enough? You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. Its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we'll tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever, he's, by the way, he says he's a king of kings. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given you them into your hand. He's given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all, that you are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So this is a crazy picture. Okay. Now, I told you that we're going to interpret it literally, wherever we can, right? Well, Daniel and other, and we'll read this as we go along, but uh, he explains what these other kingdoms are uh, by and large. And so... There's really not a lot of biblical uh, controversy or argument as to the interpretation of this dream. Fair enough? 
in terms of what, at least most of it. So, here we go. I know you like uh, visual aids. I said, I know you like visual aids. Boy, you guys are dialed in today, man. There's just no question about it. And so I, I thought you'd like this guy. He looks kind of mean, right? And this is, uh, and I know also that you can't read, uh, you can't read the small print. That's okay, all right? So in my mind, just visually, I want you to get this in your head. Is that fair enough? So I want you to hear it. I want you to read it on the pages, and I want you to see the picture. So basically, here's the breakdown of what uh, Daniel just said, okay? That there's this head of gold that represents the Babylonian Empire, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. He likes that. I'll give you the punchline for next week. Well, hang on. I'll give you that in a minute. After Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to read about this uh, in the next few chapters of Daniel, after him is going to come uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. That's represented by silver, okay? And silver has two arms, right? Most commentators would say the two arms represent the Medes and the Persians. Everybody with me so far? And historically, this plays out, right? And it's play, we, can, we can be confident about this because it's played out in past tense from where we stand, most of it, until we get to the feet, okay? So, after the Medes and Persians, uh, there's a belly of bronze. That's represented by the Grecian Empire under the uh, leadership of uh, Alexander the Great. And you look in verse 39 here, it says, that's going to be a kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So by the time Alexander the, Alexander the Great came along, basically he conquered everything. And some of you know the story historically. Uh, when he was 33 years old, uh, he was crying, basically, because there were, no, there were no lands left to conquer. And so as the story goes, you know how history goes, but as the story goes, he was so distraught over the fact there was no land left to conquer that he got himself in a drunken stupor and um, basically as a part of that drunken stupor had probably aspiration pneumonia and died at the age of 33, okay? So that's Alexander the Great. After Alexander the Great would come the Roman Empire, represented by the legs of iron, okay? And the legs of iron are signified by the Western Roman Empire, which was based in Rome, and the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople, okay? So uh, that's that. Now, what's interesting historically, you know, when Babylon, we're going to read about this, and some of you know, uh, when Babylon, when we moved from the head to the chest, that happened in a night, right? You remember uh, uh, Belshazzar's having a feast and he's mocking the God of Israel and this hand comes in and writes on the wall and, and Daniel interprets it and he says, hey, by the way, this very night, uh, you know, your time is up. And that night, uh, Babylon is gone, kind of like the head got cut off. And now we're in the Medes and Persians. It was, a, it was an abrupt thing, right? The Greeks conquered abruptly. The Romans conquered abruptly. But the end of the Roman Empire, many historians and theologians would, would kind of suggest, the end of the Roman Empire never really like came to an abrupt end like that. It just kind of um, fizzled out. Is that fair? Just kind of fizzled out. And then you get down to these feet. What is that all about? You got these feet with ten toes, right? Now, I won't ask everybody to take your shoes off. All we got to do is look at this picture, right? But your feet with ten toes, the toes are kind of connected to the feet, but they're kind of independent. Does that make sense? Like some of you can, like, pick up a dollar bill with your feet, with your toes. Some of you can't, right? The toes work but they're not completely independent. Many people believe, and the feet are a bit of a mystery. Okay, I'll give you that. Feet are a bit of a mystery. But many people believe that the feet uh, are a revived Roman Empire. Okay? That's going to happen yet future. So we've seen the Babylonian Empire. We've seen the Medo-Persian Empire. We've seen the Grecian Empire. We've seen the Roman Empire. We've not yet seen the revived Empire. Roman Empire. And many people, Bible people today, and again, I'm not a, 
I'm not a prophecy expert. I don't claim to be. Uh, I like what one guy said. If you, if you listen to somebody and basically say what he says, we call that plagiarism. If you listen to five people and say what they say, we call that research, right? And so I've researched this, right? I've, I've uh, honestly, I, I thank the Lord for lots of good Bible teachers that have, you know, kind of helped us through this along the way. But uh, many would, would agree, and I would be one of them, that there is, a, there is a revived Roman Empire that's probably best represented by the EU, if we're going to put this in modern-day terms. Now, today, there are, I believe, 27 nations in the, in the EU, right? I got to think the way I said about the specificity of the Bible, I got to think that at some point that's going to be 10 parts. And when that time comes, there will be a lot going on. But before we go any further with that, I want to point out too, you notice these metals? We go from gold to silver to bronze to iron. They go in, and, and again, this represents, if you will, the, the times of the Gentiles, okay, that Jesus spoke of. And I believe all of this is representative, again, as I said, from 605 B.C. to the tip of the toes would be the rapture of the church, okay? The metals go in, in order of increasing strength. Gold is very malleable, Right? Iron is very strong, right? They go in order of increasing strength, but of decreasing value and of decreasing significance. Does that make sense? Warren Wiersbe, I had a quote. I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. But basically, you know, we can, we can communicate. We got the Internet, sort of, if you will, but we don't know how to talk to one another. Right? This is really a picture of humanity. Increasing technology, increasing strength, increasing power, and decreasing significance, decreasing uh, value in, in a lot of ways socially. I think it's just, I mean, take that for what it's worth. Finally, notice this. These feet, they're iron mixed with clay. So they're strong and yet they're brittle right? So there's some strength in there, but they're really fragile and, and vulnerable. And then in the midst of all of this, at the end of this, we see a stone cut without hands. Verse 34, a stone cut without hands. And in verse 35, we see that it's It's going to fill the whole, I'm sorry, it's going to destroy the image and fulfill, let's just read it. <laughs> the stone struck the image, verse 35, and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone is made without hands. Is that a human thing or a, or a God thing? God. Hands are pictures of man's strength. So, Somehow, during this time of a revived Roman Empire, the ten, feet, uh, ten toes attached to a common two feet, if you will, there's going to be a stone that's cut without hands, which is going to strike the image and destroy the whole thing. And then it's going to become a great mountain and fill the earth. That is, I believe, the return of Jesus. That's the return of Jesus that's going to lay to rest the times of the Gentiles. So, uh, before I shut that thing down, I may refer back to it, so I'll leave it up. Is it distracting if I leave it up and keep reading? You okay? Are you going to be diligent to look at your Bible? Not look at the creepy picture on the wall? Okay, good. I'm trusting you now. I'm trusting you. So, verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet of toes, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, that kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. So it's going to be kind of 
strong and yet not strong. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with seed of men, but will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So the iron does not mix with clay, and again, he wants us to know by repetition that these feet are unique. More is said of the feet than really all the rest of, the, of this whole image, right? And uh, so they're united in their common connection, but they have ten toes. They will mingle with the seed of men, it says in verse 43. Uh, many people believe that means there's going to be lots of nationalities kind of coming together. And again, this is very much a picture that, again, could be consistent with a revived Roman Empire, uh, perhaps the European Union. Verse 44, and, the and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So this is the stone that he's talking about. God is going to set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So during the time of the revived Roman Empire, if you will, the, the feet and the toes, likely ten nations will be a coalition. During that time, Jesus will return and set up his kingdom. I believe this is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period where God is dealing with the Jews. That 70th week of Daniel chapter 9, Jesus returns, sets foot on planet Earth, and establishes uh, what, we've, what we've described in the past as a millennial kingdom which goes on for a thousand years uh, before final judgment in heaven and hell. But this is, is going to be an, uh, a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, let me just address one more thing prophetically. There are theologians who believe that the purpose of the church today is to sort of take over the world, okay? Our job is to kind of basically get our act together enough that we dominate everything and we usher in the coming of Jesus. I think that's contrary to this. This is, gold looks pretty good, silver looks all right, bronze get the job done, iron looks pretty tough, and at the end you got this thing that can't, that's kind of fragile, and while we're trying to decide if we're strong or fragile, boom, a stone made without hands comes in and boom, right? And we know that to be Jesus coming down and setting foot on planet Earth and saying, you know what, human government doesn't work. By the way, is it a stretch for me to say today in 2023, human government, I won't say it doesn't work, but it doesn't work divinely, right? And if you look at even in the New Testament, right, in Timothy, you know, at the last days, basically people are going to be lovers of themselves, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. It's not like, there's not a, you know, when we see, like, the world kind of looking a little more chaotic, looking like government's a little less effective to get the job done, looking like maybe there's a remnant of Christians who are dialed in and living biblically, and it sure doesn't feel like we're in the majority. I would say, well, yeah, that's the Bible I read, right? But during this time of a, of a revived Roman Empire, there's going to be a stone made without hands that's going to come down and set things right. And I like that interpretation, number one, because I believe it's, it's more biblically uh, consistent. But I also like it because, with all due respect to you guys, I'm not counting on us to fix the world as we know it. I'm counting on Jesus. The church is awesome. You guys, have I said you guys are awesome? Have I said I tell other people that you guys are awesome? I'm all about you guys are awesome. But you're not Jesus. And Jesus is fully capable of fixing the world. Fixing all of humanity. And he's got a plan to do it. And we would do well to let him carry out his plan. Verse 45. 
And the kingdom shall be left, I'm sorry. Oh, the best, last half of 44, I didn't, I didn't read. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, right? God's going to be in charge of this kingdom. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This kingdom that Jesus brings in is going to stand forever. Daniel goes on, And as much as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, Yes, in fact, that stone made without hands breaks the gold, which I've previously identified as you, King Nebuchadnezzar. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So, this divine event, the, cut out, the, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, emphasizes the sovereignty of God, and... Because Daniel revealed the dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar knew that this was divine, and Daniel does not miss the opportunity to say, this is what's happening, and it's true. Right? Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel. Aw, bless his heart. He's repentant. He's humbled. He's a new man. Well, come back next week. There's a difference between like a little hum- humility and if any person be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the, all things are new, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, he did fall on his face. He prostrated before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of, Lord, Lord of kings, and reveal of secrets. Revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So, this is all about the sovereignty of God, but guess what? Daniel's faithful, and Daniel is honored, and Daniel has even a further audience with the king, right? It's just like Joseph before Pharaoh. God does all the work. Daniel's faithful. God has a divine plan, but we need to be faithful. So, God has a divine plan for us today, right? Prophetically, he's laid it all out. Right? Most of this has already happened. He's laid it all out. And if most of it has already happened and happened with the exquisite precision that's described, think about this. The Medes and Persians, two arms. Right? This is a precise prophecy. And so, if it's, preci- if it's precisely accurate, we know historically, all the way down to the ankles, could it be? that the rest of it will be precisely accurate? The feet and toes? You bet it will. So, I believe the church will be raptured prior to his return. But these birth pangs spoken of by Jesus, we see these contracting now, don't we? We see these contracting now. So we look to him. And again, we don't get freaked out by prophecy. Some of the reasons, you know, when I said some people ignore prophecy, it's because it's kind of creepy to them. Right? Yeah, some people feel like it's scary. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, there's nothing scary about God being in control. There's nothing scary about God who loves his children, wanting to bless and take care of his children. Right? And there's nothing scary about God giving his word to his children so that we know what to expect. Right? Now, we don't have all the details, you know, we don't know everything. But he gives us a lot. He gives us a lot. And so, here's what prophecy should do. Prophecy should make me say, wow. You know, everything all the way down to the ankles has been fulfilled. And you know, these feet and toes, if I'm, you know, it's not a stretch to call that a revived Roman Empire like, that looks like the EU. It's not a stretch for me to think that Jesus could come back 
today. It's not a stretch for me to say, you know, these birth pangs that lead up to the tribulation period, they happen, right? And as, as, you, as you march out the order, right, there's birth pangs that are kind of like, in a sense, if you will, birth pangs that the tribulation is coming, but the birth pangs happen, it's, it's, it's reasonable to expect that we'll live through a few birth pangs before the rapture of the church that sets up Jesus' return. Does that make sense? So you've got these birth pangs, right? One of the things that's going to happen during the tribulation period is, we've talked about this before, there's a, there's a revival of, of Babylon. There's, a, there's sort of a one-world system, right, that's got sort of a, a common religious and political and economic solution to all of our problems. Can I tell you this? Has you ever, have, you, have you ever dealt with a salesman? Have you ever dealt with a salesman that tries to sell, and I'm almost done. You ever dealt with a salesman that's trying to sell you something that you don't need? You ever done that? Salesman trying to tell you, sell you something. I, I've dealt with a lot of salespeople in my life, right? And it takes an astute salesman, salesperson, to sell you something that you really need, right? They have to present your problem to you before they can present your solution to you. Does that make sense? Can I propose just a thought? And I'm, this, is, this is completely my thought. I don't, so if you don't like it, just be mad at me for a little bit. One of the things that's going to happen during the tribulation period is a rise of globalism. Does that make sense? I mean, the Antichrist is going to come to power and a lot of this kind of stuff we'll get to over the next few years. But there's going to be a lot of globalism. This Babylonian, revived Babylonian empire is basically a global-dominated empire. Does that make sense? In order to have a global-dominated empire, that global-dominated empire has to be an answer to global problems. Does that make sense? Was COVID a global problem? Yes. Did we ever think about global health care before 2020? Really? On a, day, on a day-to-day basis? Do we think about, like, global solutions to health care problems prior to 2020? No. We hear about environment, right? Is that a global problem? Yeah. It's a... It's a it's, I mean, again, you know, different people have different opinions about it, but it appears to be an, uh, a global problem. Might need a global solution, right? Could it be, anybody ever notice that we got economic chaos? Do we need an economic, and is that just American, by the way? It's global, right? Do we have political chaos? Yeah. Is that American? You see the birth pangs? Global problems beget proposed man-made global solutions, right? And so are we potentially nearing the time of the rapture of the church? I believe we may be. Does that mean, I mean, I don't know times and seasons necessarily. Does that mean tomorrow? Does that mean 100 years from now? Sure. What's it mean for me? It means I need to have an urgency. Can I tell you this? I'm so heavy about this. We're all the way down to the ankles, and we're seeing birth pangs prior to the rapture of the church and the tribulation. We do not have the luxury to waste time. We do not have the luxury to play around with God. So I just say that to say it. I am 
thankful for faithful people. The memorial service we went to yesterday was all about a faithful saint that died with her spiritual boots on, big time. And I long for that for each and every one of us, myself included. Don't waste time. Don't waste energy. Don't waste resources. Don't play around because he's coming. The stone made without hands is coming and potentially very soon. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you're in control. We thank you so much that none of this is dependent upon us. We just get to see your goodness, but we do need to be responsible. So Lord, help us not to freak out. Help us not to be, on the other hand, sloppy. Help us to be diligent to faithfully serve you like Daniel did. And thank you that you are in control of all of history, past, present, and future. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.